A trip to the Andes will leave you impressed with the civilization of the Incas. They've built about 26,000 miles of roadways up and down over the Andes, down in the jungles, and they had kind of a pony express of runners that would run. They could bring fresh fish up from the coast up to where the emperor lived in Cusco in about a day. Coming up in the hour ahead, Kim McQuarrie provides a glimpse at life in the Andes before the conquistadors. Or journey to the far north to see what Canadian writer Kathleen Winter learned from Native communities in the Arctic. It's in that kind of cultural authenticity that I think lies the planet's only viable future. And reporter Elizabeth Becker explains how recent growth in global tourism is bringing the world closer together. But sometimes it might be a little too close. A place is so beautiful it will be loved to death. Come along as we examine the global travel industry and indigenous life from the Andes to the Arctic. It's all just ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. The end of the Cold War and the dawn of inexpensive flights have been a boon for the travel industry. Coming up on today's Travel with Rick Steves, we'll see how tourism has become the largest employer in the world. And we'll look at the impressive indigenous sites you can experience in the Andes, sites that once rivaled the Roman Empire half a world away. Shipping interests are eager to open up a northwest passage through the Canadian Arctic. Global warming is actually creating the shortcut that the doomed Franklin expedition never found after leaving England in 1845. And it's helped researchers to finally locate his sunken ships. Kathleen Winter was invited to be writer-in-residence on a Russian icebreaker expedition through Nunavut and Greenland. Landing in Arctic villages, she learned why Inuit communities feel threatened by the push for year-round shipping routes. She also saw for herself that the stark landscape is far from being desolate or empty of life. Kathleen writes about her life-changing adventures in Boundless, tracing land and dream in a new Northwest Passage. Kathleen, thanks for being with us again. It's a pleasure. Now, you wrote your book after being invited onto a Russian icebreaker with a bunch of scientists and scholars and artists and so on, and you really were tracing the ill-fated expedition of Lord John Franklin from, what, 1845. Tell us about Franklin's expedition and how that kind of shaped your experience. Well, the last time any Europeans saw him, he was tied to an iceberg in a place called Disco Bay outside of Greenland. His whole trajectory... It had a dual nature. The British government used it for two things. They used it to glorify colonial expansion and, you know, whip up public support for it in the hope of getting copper and different resources. But they also made a romantic story, again, in the hope of having people sympathetic to spending all this money on these explorations. And it was the same romantic story of terra incognita, that just the heart of an Englishman, the heart of my father, who was an Englishman, he immigrated from England when I was eight years old. And they're still like that over there. They still think that the frozen north is terra incognita and is somehow a spiritual receptacle for all of the romantic freedom that cramped Englishmen have longed for through the centuries. But this was more than romance. Didn't England have some kind of a a financial and economic interest in that? And, of course, today everybody is suddenly interested in the Northwest Passage because it's not just a whole lot of nothing anymore. You can go there and and there's a, a wealth of natural resources. Well, yes. And, I mean, at the time of Franklin, they thought it was going to lead to the Orient and to those riches. But it soon became apparent that there were furs, there was copper, there was gold. And now the Coast Guard vessel that we encountered 
wasn't peopled by Coast Guard. It was manned by geologists mapping the uncharted northern ocean floor for British Petroleum and consortia of government and business oil exploration interests. So it's still going on. It's an unbroken line. It's a feeding frenzy. It has never stopped since Franklin, and it, it won't stop anytime soon. So, Kathleen, do I understand the, the basic sort of um, change is that what used to be frozen and inaccessible is now open water, and you can actually take a big ship and sail from Greenland to Alaska quite easily. Exactly. There is still pack ice. Ships are still turned back because of pack ice, but with every season that passes, the ice becomes less and less, so that now we're looking at large ships being able to go through routinely. There's still a huge danger, but the expected economic gain outweighs that in the minds of the people making the journey. Author Kathleen Winters joining us from her home base in Montreal right now on Travel with Rick Steves after her trip as writer-in-residence on an Arctic research vessel. In your book, Boundless, Tracing Land and Dream in a New Northwest Passage, you talk in a very interesting way comparing Greenland and Arctic Canada. If you were living in Greenland and if you were a resident of Arctic Canada, how would the two lifestyles vary and, and what would be a, a more enjoyable place to live? Well, it depends who you ask. Two of the big differences are Greenlandic Inuit still have their dogs. They still have their sled dogs and they use them for hunting. And every village has more dogs than people. So if you go there, you will hear unearthly howling of the dogs and you will see equipment for dogs and people are still working with these animals. In the Canadian north, it's skidoos. The dogs were in a series of um, very controversial actions by the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. They were removed from the Inuit people. Uh, so we got dog power in Greenland and snow machines in Canada. What else? The second thing is the way that food is partaken of and shared or sold. In Greenland, wild food such as seal, fish, even gulls and sea birds that we wouldn't think of as food in the South, they are collectively sold in a butcher shop. They have price tags on them. This would never happen in the Canadian North where wild food is shared by the communities. When there's a, a whale or when there's something caught, you, you share it with your family and with the community. I was told this by the two Inuit women who were on board our ship. And Ayu Peter is a Greenlandic Canadian. She has lived in both places. In Greenland, it looks more prosperous. There's a very high Danish presence. There's a, a commercial freedom, and there's, it looks sort of like the way things look in the South. In Canada, it looks much more forlorn. Tourists on board our ship said, why does it look so poverty-stricken? Why are the buildings unpainted? Why does it look so sad? But Ayu Peter said, it's because there's an economy that you can't see. It doesn't look like business as usual in the warm South. It is a familial economy, and I would not trade mm. it, she said, for the way things are in Greenland. So now this is interesting. So could you say in Greenland it's more corporation-driven and, and a typical economy that we would be used to down here in the more temperate zone? And in the north of Canada, it's more sort of an indigenous cooperatism? On one level, yes. Now, there are grocery stores in the far Canadian north, but they don't sell wild meat. 
they sell at exorbitant prices food from mega corporations that indigenous people have a hard time affording. So they have to have their old ways. So they have to share. They have to, yes. They work together. Yes. It's a whole different feeling. Author Kathleen Winters, our guest right now on Travel with Rick Steves. Today we're talking about her memoir, Boundless, Tracing Land and Dream in a New Northwest Passage. You'll find a link to her book in this week's show details in the radio section of ricksteves.com. You wrote um, that Beachy Island was the bleakest, most desolate piece of land you'd ever seen. But you also said in the north it's not a whole lot of nothing. What did you mean by both of those descriptions? Well, we had an American pilot who brought us from Toronto to Greenland, where we began the journey. And as we flew over that little bit of the Canadian north on our way to Greenland, he said on the intercom, there you have it, folks, a whole lot of nothing. And people gasped because it's only a whole lot of nothing if you're looking at it from a southern point of view. And I think, actually, the pilot might have been playing the devil's advocate. Mm -hmm. Because when you get down there... Everything from the plants, the intricate, small Arctic plants, to the cultural dance and song and communication of the indigenous people, it's the farthest thing from nothing that you could ever hope to see. In fact, it's in that kind of cultural authenticity that I think lies the planet's only viable future instead of homogeneity and corporate life. Explain that a little more, because I think that sounds very the fundamental value of of your whole voyage? When you look at the word culture, it has so many meanings. It can be making food that requires bacterial culture, like fermented foods that are old-fashioned and no longer made by many people, like sauerkraut or even fermented fish and, and traditional foods of indigenous people. You can look at culture as the folk song and the story that we tell each other. Now, with globalization culture has become so homogenized and so corporate that it can barely be said to exist in anything except an artificial way. But these pockets of real indigenous storytelling, food-making, human-scale culture are what exist in places like the far north. And these are the things that I think will save the planet because they will never be stamped out by corporate culture. They're so tiny, yet so powerful, that they are the last vestiges of what I call real, authentic life on the planet. Kathleen, it feels like as a global community, we're coming around to the understanding that when it comes to our environment and agriculture, that this monoculture, you know, having one variety of plant that grows huge, is actually short-sighted, and and you've lost the vibrancy and the diversity, and in the long term it weakens the environment from an agricultural point of view. Are you saying it's uh, there's a similar risk when we have one dominant culture that we lose the vibrancy that keeps things spongy and flexible and, and vibrant in the long term? Absolutely. I think the concept of culture spans from food to people and also to all life on Earth. The thing that I would stress, though, is that It's tempting to think of powerful corporations and monoculture as being on the rise and powerful and a threat, all of which is true. But I would like, after traveling in the North and seeing the power of small pockets of real indigenous culture, I'd like to challenge that and to say, you know, we always ask what one person can do, what one family can do, or one little community can do. We 
as individuals on a human scale have the actual authentic key to survival and thriving on planet Earth. We're the ones that have the key when we keep culture alive, meaningful human scale culture. We're not in danger until we throw in the towel. And Kathleen, that all seems to be summed up in the title of your book, Boundless. Where does the word boundless come from? Is that the name of a ship or is that just your title of your book? The word boundless came to me while I was looking for a title because it exemplified the taking away of the boundary between my inner perception and the consciousness of the planet itself. There is no boundary. There is no other. This experience that you have had and that you have shared, Kathleen Winter, in your book, Boundless, is so much more than a cruise through the Arctic and the New Northwest Passage. It is, it is an example, a powerful example, of how when we get out of our comfort zone, whether it's culturally or just going into someplace that's very cold, that seems a whole lot of nothing, we realize there's a whole lot of everything there, and solutions are not simple, but they are lurking out there for us to discover. Thank you, Kathleen, for your book, Boundless, and, and sharing your experience with us. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a real joy. We head south next to explore the indigenous sites and history in the Andes. Later in the hour, we look at why you're seeing more tourists from places like India and China as the travel industry grows around the world. We're at 877-333-7425. It's Travel with Rick Steves. The world's longest mountain range is home to trails and villages where it's easy to imagine yourself among the Incas and their predecessors many centuries ago. Or perhaps where you'll encounter evidence of famous and notorious figures of the 19th and 20th centuries who worked, adventured, and sometimes died in the Andes. When Kim McQuarrie decided to take an extended research trip to the Andes, he already knew a bit about its life and legends. He'd lived in Peru for five years and had a background in anthropology. Kim returned to uncover the dramatic stories that took place in South America, from the likes of Charles Darwin and the voyagers of the Contiki to Che Guevara, Pablo Escobar, and even Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Kim writes about them in Life and Death in the Andes, on the trail of bandits, heroes, and revolutionaries. Kim, thanks for joining us. Uh, thanks for having me. Boy, the Andes, what a wonderful sort of target for your trip. In writing this beautiful book of yours, you traveled, what, 4,500 miles? Tell us about the basic context of your trip as you researched your book. Yeah, I've traveled quite a bit in South America, and I'd always been interested in doing like an epic trip from all the way from the north down to the south. I'd, I'd traveled in pieces. I lived in Peru and lived, you know, I traveled in Bolivia and different countries, but I was really interested in stringing it all together. And then not only stringing it all together in terms of a long voyage, but looking into specifically some of the most interesting stories I could find, stories that were epic in nature. Part of your book is talking about heroes, bandits, and revolutionaries, but another part of it is talking about pre-Columbian wonders and the indigenous history. And I suppose anytime you're traveling in South America, it's hard to avoid that. Give us a little thumbnail um, background or context here. What were the leading pre-Columbian cultures? That's a good question. Most people think about Machu Picchu and the Incas, and that makes a lot of sense because the Incas had the largest pre-Columbian empire known and also they were there when the Spaniards arrived. What is less known is that before the Incas, there was thousands of years of pre-Incan civilizations, many as, as spectacular as the Incas, maybe not as large and, and expansive empire, but could cut stone as well, could work with gold as well, had roads and highways and temples and that kind of thing, going back literally thousands of years prior to the Incas. So the Incas were more like the Romans of mm. Europe. They were the best at the incorporating what had come before them, and they were fantastic administrators. And like the Romans, they were great conquerors, but they didn't invent most of what 
people consider Incan civilization. It was borrowed from previous civilizations. So that's interesting. Uh, you know, we know about Rome to a great extent because they were great builders, and I suppose the Incas were great builders too, and we're looking at the infrastructure of their long-gone empire. Like the Romans, they since they were good administrators and good conquerors, they were very good at administering large expanses of territory, which were immensely complex, much more complex than anything the Romans encountered in, in Europe. Because the Andes, you know, there's many peaks over 20,000 feet. It's nothing but mountains from north to south to their empire. So it was fantastically complicated territory to consolidate and to govern. And therefore, they built about 26,000 miles of roadways up and down over the Andes, down in the jungles. And they had messengers that would kind of a pony express of runners that would run. They could bring fresh fish up from the coast up to where the emperor lived in Cusco in about a day. They were just fantastic at stringing all of this together and keeping records and accounts and that kind of thing. Now, in your book, Life and Death in the Andes, you talk about the marvel of how 168 Spanish soldiers could conquer this Incan empire of a million people. Yeah, and it was estimated 10 million people. So it was 100, yeah, 100 160 guys that were not even professional soldiers with about 80 horses encountered an empire that was the largest empire that ever existed in the New World. And there was a whole lot of reasons for how they succeeded in that. Uh, one of the many reasons, they had guns, they had gunpowder, they had steel armor. The Incas had, like, padded cotton. The Incas didn't have gunpowder. They had clubs and they had slings and that kind of thing. Also, the Spaniards had writing so they could send messages. The Incas had these knotted cords, but it wasn't as descriptive, couldn't carry as much information. And very importantly, the Spaniards had a knowledge of the outside world, and specifically, they, Cortes had already conquered the Aztec Empire prior to Pizarro's arrival in Peru, and he also captured the emperor there. So they came with the foreknowledge of how to conquer native civilizations, whereas the Incas viewed just a small group of kind of strange people arrive on the coast, and they were probably more curious than anything else. It's an amazing story. I, I understand uh, for decades they didn't need to mine anything of value. They could just loot all of the gold that they found. Yeah, one of the famous stories, which is actually a true story, is when Pizarro captured the Inca emperor, Atahualpa made him an offer. And Atahualpa said, I will fill this room here, it was a large room, all the way up to here. And he stood as high as he could and put his hand up towards the ceiling. I'll fill this room full of gold if you let me free, because he quickly realized the Spaniards are very interested in, in gold, which for the Incas was more of a, a sacred substance. They didn't have a monetary economy, so you can imagine it was strange for them to see these people from afar with these beards so interested in this, what they considered just kind of an interesting hmm. product. Mm -hmm. That's what happened. They spent months and months and months. The emperor sent out word out throughout the empire, which I told you was, again, was extremely enormous, and sent out word, send all the gold here to where I'm captured they tore down gold out of temples and stripped it off of walls. So and they harvested the gold themselves for these conquerors, realizing that yep. these crazy guys from Spain, they get all crazy about this yellow, shiny stuff. Yeah, and one of the stories I like the best, to hasten the delivery of this metal, Pizarro sent these three Spaniards, and these were ordinary, most of the conquistadors were very ordinary people. They're bakers and milliners, and they sewed boots together and that kind of thing. He sent these three fellows from Spain down to Cusco, which is about a thousand miles to the south, to hurry the process, to go visit this capital they'd heard of, this sacred capital filled full of gold. And these three Spaniards were carried on litters because that's how the Incas traveled, the Inca royalty traveled. They were carried like a thousand miles down to the Andes on these litters by hmm. bearers, and they were the first to really see this new world, this new empire, this new civilization, and they were the first ones to see Cusco in the the sacred mm. temple of gold and that kind of thing. And I can only imagine what a voyage must have been 
like wow. back in the 1500s being carried to this empire on these Indians you've conquered, having no backup. It's just a three-year view, and you're hoping that things don't go wrong. They must not have been able to believe their eyes. Now, when we think of the grandeur of the Incan Empire, we think of Machu Picchu, and you tell the interesting story of the, quote, discoverer of Machu Picchu. Yeah, the fellow who discovered Machu Picchu was actually looking for, he was he was a historian from uh, Yale, and he was looking for something else. He, nobody had ever discovered, nobody knew anything about Machu Picchu, nobody ever heard about it. It was an undiscovered city. He was looking for the story of a city called Vilcabamba, which after the conquest, after Pizarro conquered the Incas, the Incas then rose up against the Spaniards three years afterwards, and they had a massive rebellion against the Spaniards. They fought it out, and then the Incas in the process had abandoned Cusco. The emperor took a, his retinue down into the jungle, and they founded a new capital, Inca capital, down in the Amazon jungle called Vilcabamba. And for the next 40 years, they fought the Spaniards from that capital, sending guerrilla armies back up into the Andes and learning how to ride horseback and that kind of thing. So Hiram Bingham, this professor from the university, was interested, read about that story, and he wanted to discover that city, Vilcabamba, and that's what he set out to discover. And in the process, he stumbled across what later became known as Machu Picchu. And to this day, that's really the major tourist draw in that whole part of South America. One of the reasons is that it was a city that was a citadel that was abandoned by the Incas. And probably during this process, you can imagine your empires invaded up in the north, and there's these strange people. They've captured basically your president. They're holding him hostage. Everything just starts to fall apart, and what Machu Picchu was at the time was like a royal residence, and it had a retinue of people that took care of it when the emperor was not there, kind of like a fancy hotel or a Camp David. And you can imagine when rumors started to go out to that area, which was very isolated, that, uh-oh, things are not going well, you know, there's, we've been invaded, and the emperor's been captured, they basically abandoned it, and probably the people that worked there disappeared and went back to wherever they were from in the first place. So the Spaniards, as a consequence, never found it, and it was covered up in cloud forest jungle, and it wasn't until Hiram Bingham scientifically discovered it, meaning made it known. It was known to local people in the area, mm -hmm. but until he made it known to publish a National Geographic, they devoted a whole issue of Geographic back in uh, 1911 to this discovery. So, so that, 1911, amazing. Yeah. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Kim McQuarrie, and his book is Life and Death in the Andes, our phone number is 877-333-7425. And Mercedes on the line from New York City. Mercedes, thanks for your call. Yes, hi, thanks. I'm a high school teacher, and next spring I'm going to be traveling with a group of high school students to Peru. We're going to Cusco, Machu Picchu, the Sacred Valley, uh, Lake Titicaca, and I'd just like some advice of how to best prepare the students for the people, the culture, the history of the Andes. Oh, yeah. Hi, Mercedes. Um, you've picked a great itinerary, and I think the best thing uh, for your students is to read as much as they can before they arrive. You know, obviously, I wrote a book about the conquest of the Inca Empire, but any book on the conquest um, is going to be very helpful because I've heard over and over again that people have read about it before they arrive at Machu Picchu or Cusco or any of those places, Titicaca. The more they know about it beforehand, the more they enjoy it once they're there. So that would be my, my main advice to you. Mercedes, when I was hearing what you're going to be doing, taking students down to these amazing places, a big dimension will be not only, as Kim mentions, preparing so you have a context to understand the history and the culture, but connecting with the uh, culture today. And, that, and I think it would be a challenge to actually have a chance to sit down with people who are involved in challenges for the community these days. Kim, is there much opportunity for an American teacher with their students to connect with people who are making a difference today? A hundred percent. I mean, there's a lot online there, but there's a lot of different organizations. You know, South American Explorers Club has uh, offices like in Lima and, and Cusco, and they have a ton of information, that kind of thing. And 
They help a lot of uh, people find that kind of information for going down in tours, etc. There's plenty of opportunity. There's a lot of tours to go down there to these places, but the people that are down there are extremely interested in people visiting and foreigners and that kind of thing. So it's going to be a great trip. Wonderful advice. Anything else um, to help the students culturally, any type of culture shock, you know, so they can ease into the experience? Sure. Uh, well, obviously, if you know, the more language they learn, the better, the more Spanish. And even if they don't know any Spanish at all, even if they learn five words, those five words are going to use over and over again. So the more effort you put into that, even if it's just a handful of words or phrases, that's going to carry them a long ways. And the other thing is up in the Andes, it's pretty high. Cusco is at uh, 11,000 feet. To plan in the first day or two to take it easy, stay hydrated, get used to the altitude. Usually the time when people get hit the most, if they fly from Lima to, to Cusco and start running around and hiking the first day, you know, you should take it easy the first day or two and plan like museum visits, that kind of thing. Well, I think that would be worthwhile, Mercedes. Good luck with your teaching. Thank you so much. And Rick, I want to say I, I agree so much with you and your philosophy, and I work very hard to help students become global citizens because it's, it's the best thing for our world. So thank you so much. You've both given me very great advice. Well, if you're a school teacher, I say thank you for your service. <laughs> thank um, you. All right. <laughs> I'm second that. Thanks so much. Our Travel with Rick Steves guest is Kim McQuarrie. He follows the path of conquistadors and other trailblazers and renegades in his book, Life and Death in the Andes. By the way, FXTV's working on a series called Conquistadors, based on Kim's earlier book. It's called The Last Days of the Incas. There's more on his website, kimmacquarie.com, spelled M-A-C-Q-U-A-R-R-I-E. Kim, a fascinating part of your book is about uh, the Contiki voyage and how it relates to Lake Titicaca and the floating islands there. Explain how Titicaca and Contiki are tied together. On Lake Titicaca, which is the highest navigable lake in the world, and it's 12,500 feet up in the Andes, there's reed boat builders that have been up there at least since the time of the Incas, probably long before that. And they traditionally lived on floating islands, and those floating islands are still out there. They're, it's a reed called Totora reed. It's a bulrush. It's like a papyrus. And they harvest that. They make these big islands out of it. They put their homes on there. They make boats out of that. They eat the end of the tubers. Whoa, so and, now uh, I've seen the contiki. That's the boat Tor Heyerdahl put together. And the reeds that make the contiki, are they the same as the reeds that make the floating islands on Lake Titicaca? Heyerdahl used balsa wood, um, balsa wood from Ecuador on his first trip on the contiki. Oh, I'm he thinking made a of lot the of, raw, I guess. Exactly. He made a number of voyages, and he did the raw expeditions, and the raw expeditions were reed. The first one, the raw one, was made out of uh, papyrus from Egypt, and then he actually flew three boat builders from Lake Titicaca all the way out to Egypt to make his raw two ship, and he traveled from Egypt all the way over to South America, trying to prove his theory that perhaps there had been a contact between the two areas back in the past. Wow. And when you go to Lake Titicaca today, as a traveler, uh, what are the highlights and what should you be sure to experience? It's a beautiful, beautiful kind of magical area. It's the whole Titicaca area. There's islands out in the lake. The Incas believe they came from one of the central islands, Island of the Sun. Uh, there's floating islands out there, these Totori islands that people still live on today. And there's the Tiwanaku civilization, which was a pre-Inca civilization about a thousand years before the Incas. They had their capital down near the shores of Lake Titicaca. It's still there. It's a stone temple, stone pyramids overlooking the lake. And that civilization, too, considered the lake sacred. It's just a fabulous place to explore. Wow. Now, also when you're in South America, you're tempted to go out to Galapagos. And you wrote about going out to Galapagos and learning about how Charles Darwin almost didn't make the uh, discoveries that we all know he made. 
Yeah, Darwin left England, and he thought he was going on a two-year voyage around the world and ended up taking five years. And he spent a lot of time in Patagonia, and I devoted a chapter to that area. And that was when he first started collecting evidence that started to get him thinking about the world differently than he had before he left. And he continued on up the coast, up to Peru, stopped in Lima, and then they headed out to the Galapagos. And the, the idea of the voyage was to map the area, and he was the naturalist, so he spent... He visited a lot of the islands, made collections. He hadn't discovered evolution. He wasn't even thinking along those lines, but he was collecting evidence that eventually led him to stumble upon the theory of evolution. And one of the key areas was the Galapagos Islands, and that's because a lot of the plants and animals there turned out to only be from the Galapagos Islands. They're indigenous there, and that really kind of stumped him. In your book, I love this phrase, what you see is what you believed before you looked. What's What's the context of that? Where did that come from? That's a quotation from a, a writer, and it's very apropos for Darwin and for, you know, for modern life, too. You know, Darwin very much believed, you know, he was very religious when he left. He was going to become a pastor in England before he left on this voyage, you know. So he was an Anglican, and he saw the world biblically, and he thought that all the animals and plants had been created. And when he went out to the Galapagos and found out that most of the plants and animals were only found there. He couldn't figure out why that was. But he was prevented from actually seeing what was there for a long time because of the beliefs they brought with them. So he's almost like blinded, as was the captain of the ship, to the evidence they were seeing. So what you see is uh, what you believe before you look. And that's very true. And it's true now with any culture. That's what makes culture, right? You see the world differently because of your belief system. It's an important part of travel is to be able to be able to see beyond your preconceptions. 100%. That's why we travel. My voyage of becoming an anthropologist started studying abroad in Europe, you know, but by studying abroad, you in a sense become an anthropologist because as soon as you learn a language and live in another culture, you're seeing your own culture from a different perspective. But that's why one of the great things about travel. It's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing. You learn more about your own culture sometimes by leaving it and looking at it from a distance. And I always compare it to being at a party and going out in the back at night and looking back through the glass door at the people inside. That's what living in another culture is like. We're talking with Kim McQuarrie. And Kim's book is Life and Death in the Andes, on the trail of bandits, heroes, and revolutionaries. And Kim, you write about the southernmost city on the planet and meeting the last person on Earth who spoke a small indigenous language there, Yamana. Tell us a little bit about that experience. Yeah, that's uh, the tip of Patagonia. And Patagonia is kind of like, it, it, you know, it evokes windswept areas and being very remote and glaciers. And it has all those things. It's just a beautiful untouched area and there's islands out there and fjords and glaciers crumbling down there, blue glaciers. It's just a fantastic area. But it used to be inhabited by a number of indigenous tribes and Darwin um, stopped there on HMS Beagle and explored it quite a bit. And the story I pursued was that the captain of the HMS Beagle had taken three Patagonian natives back to London before the Darwin voyage and had taught they learned how to speak English and they had accompanied Darwin back to Patagonia and they let them go there basically and that woman that I tracked down in this chapter is the last speaker of the of uh, the language that two of the natives that Darwin met had spoken at the time, and that culture was much more abundant back then in the 1800s. It's kind of sad to think that's the last person who speaks that language. Yes, it is. And, um, you know, speaking about looking at the world in a different way, you know, through cultures and why we travel, um, if you speak another language, no matter what, you see the world differently. Inevitably, and if you the Yamana language... A missionary put together the only known dictionary back in the 1800s who spoke it fluently. And they have, just like you hear about Eskimos, have many words for snow. Well, the Yamana have many different words for shellfish and the kinds of things that were abundant in their world. And when that language passes on and disappears, you lose that perspective of how they saw the world. Hmm. So much to see and learn in South America. Kim McCory, 
author of Life and Death in the Andes. Best wishes, Kim, and thanks again. Thanks very much, Rick. Tourism ain't what it used to be. It's a whole lot more. Up next, we explore why with former NPR business correspondent Elizabeth Becker. We're at 877-333-RICK. And by email, we're at radio at ricksteves.com. The travel industry is growing around the world like never before. The emergence of a large middle class in countries like India and China means that as many as 100 million newly prosperous Chinese and Indians now have the means to travel abroad. But travel companies and governments have to develop new strategies to manage all the crowds eager to see the sites without overwhelming and destroying them. Elizabeth Becker took five years to research the issue of the travel industry for her bestseller, Overbooked, The Exploding Business of Travel and Tourism. It's been recently updated by Simon & Schuster, and she joins us now from her home base in Washington, D.C. Elizabeth, welcome. Well, thank you for having me. There has been interesting change, just earth-shaking change in tourism in the last generation. It, It seems to me it's gone from an elite activity to a mass industry. What's happening in tourism? Essentially two things. One is historic and one is technological. The historic part was the end of the Cold War, just before the beginning of the 21st century. At the end of the Cold War, suddenly half of the globe opened up. Hmm. That means a good bit of Asia, China, all of the Asia-Soviet Union, half of Europe, lots of Southeast Asia. Suddenly, we talk about the world without borders. The one industry that really, really took advantage of that was travel and tourism, Hmm. which makes sense in hindsight, but we were sort of dumbfounded by what happened. Secondly was the technology, and you you sort of brushed on it when you're talking about 100 million Indians or 100 million Chinese traveling, flying. Well, one of the reasons they can, not only is it because the borders are open now, but also because you have inexpensive flights, technology and transportation, internet, you name it. It has fed into the ability for everyone to travel. Mm. Now, just how big is tourism compared to other industries? Well, when you said before it was elite, that was true. It was seen more as a pastime. Mm-hmm. Also, however, it was seen as not the sum total of its parts. So people tended to look at the airline industry, the hotel industry, so on and so forth. Now that we look at the travel and tourism industry, we can see in the last two decades, it has climbed to among the top 10 industries in the world. It is now the single biggest employer in the world. One out of 11 people work in the travel and tourism industry. I read in your book, one billion people cross borders every year. That, that is just mind-boggling. <laughs> what are the trends? What, what are the, just the big picture? You got a billion people crossing borders. Are they families on road trips? Are they conventioners? Uh, how, how does it break out? Business is big. Mm-hmm. Another thing is medical tourism, health, spa, medical tourism, mm-hmm. The biggest remains religious tourism because the Hajj is included in that. The biggest single travel event of the year remains the Hajj. So the biggest part of that pie is pilgrimages and religious trips, and that would be mostly outside of Christendom? Well, Christendom is those pilgrimages are becoming popular to the non-religious as well. I think you've taken the route in Spain, haven't you? The community Santiago. That's very trendy now. Very trendy. And then farm tourism which is part of the cuisine. It's name it and we can turn it into a travel experience. Well, let's go through these because I just had so much fun paging through your book and and stumbling (laughs) upon kinds of travel that I never even considered. Um, 
fly and flop tourism. <laughs> that was my favorite term. Thank you for bringing it up. This is the beach vacation where you take an inexpensive airplane trip and you find your favorite little resort and you flop there and you don't have much interest in anything but the beach mm -hmm. and those drinks with paper umbrellas and having a good time and finding a great nightclub. So that's still strong. Flying to Mazatlan, you don't learn a single word of Mexican unless it's how to order your margarita. No. Okay. Exactly. And drive-by tourism. <laughs> drive-by tourism is the crowds you've covered in, in Venice, for instance, St. Mark's, where you get off of your cruise ship or your bus, you, you barely remember what you've right. seen. And someone is pointing here, someone's pointing there, and you end up at the souvenir shop. And I saw this all over the world. To me, I would think of that as bucket list tourism, too. A lot of people just have a checklist and, okay, I've seen that now, back on the bus and go to the hotel and hope the air condition works. I mean, in Asia, gosh, the Taj Mahal. That's a, an interesting thing because people who have a less sophisticated understanding of a faraway land, they all go to the same place. If any American who doesn't know India is going to India, they want to go to the Taj Mahal. If any American who doesn't know China goes to China, they want to go to the Great Wall. Conversely, when a Chinese person goes to Europe, they want to see the Eiffel Tower. And I can say the Eiffel Tower is better managed than all the ones you've mentioned. Yeah, I can bet. <laughs> you know, all my life I've been working and guiding in Europe, and I've, I've been uh, observing big bus tourism. Is big bus tourism still uh, a big part of the pie? Fifty people get on a bus and uh, somebody drives them around and they, they see all the famous sites? It's unavoidable. People would like to change it. They're moving towards minimalizing it. But it's unavoidable with the numbers that we're talking about. Mm -hmm. When you have over a billion people, you see that trend towards shrinking in the river cruise. River cruises are taking over not just in Europe, but also in Asia, where people want a smaller group. They don't want to be in a huge bus, mm. and they will go with the river, and then they'll get off and on. Mm. But that's still small. You, it's unavoidable so far, the big buses. Did I read in your book there's 400 cruise ships in the world? It's growing now above 400, but that, yes, yes. And they're not only is the number growing, but the size is growing. The cruise ships have a problem, first of all, now with the size. So you have thousands of cruise ships. Often they dock at the same time. All these people, 6,000, 7,000, disembarking at the same time and flooding areas. And you, you're seeing in the industry a recognition that a lot of destinations are saying, we can't stand this, you're flooding our places. And maybe the tourists like it, but the people they're visiting don't. And you've seen in the United States, the city of Savannah voted against having cruise ships because of what they saw happen just mm -hmm. south in, in Charleston. In Charleston, they're in a big fight. So even Alaska, you've had several attempts to uh, cut back or move ships away from different ports. I went cruising in Alaska, and I learned that uh, the cruise ships actually are so aggressive that they will tell an entire town, we're going to stop in your town, but you've got to give us a percent of your entire town's gross during our visit, not just the shops, but what the whole town sells. And some towns are just saying, no, hell no, we're not going to be, you know, you're a little colony. And the cruise ships say, okay, we won't stop there. Uh, this is a major issue for towns if they want to embrace the tourism and have a lot of money but lose their soul. It's a tough call for them to make. Yes, and what is interesting is the destinations that do a real data search, and now you can do that thanks to our wonderful technology, to find out exactly how much money is made per visitor from a cruise ship. Mm -hmm. And the Caribbean country of Belize did that, and based on it, they discovered that their land people per person spend 
several times more than the cruise ship passengers. All over Europe, the cruises are the scourge because they don't buy dinner, they don't stay in a hotel, they just trample through in the day and then they go back to their ship. We're learning the big issues travel and tourism are facing around the world with Elizabeth Becker right now on Travel with Rick Steves. She's been a New York Times correspondent and senior foreign editor at National Public Radio. In Overbooked, Elizabeth explores the issues cultural tourism faces in France, Cambodia, and Venice. She also discusses the pressures on nature tourism in places like Zambia, Costa Rica, and Sri Lanka, the cruise industry, the new Chinese hunger for travel, and political fights over funding for tourism research here in the United States. Her website is elizabethbecker.com. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. And Ben's calling in from Anchorage up in Alaska. Ben, we were just talking about cruising in Alaska. Do you have any thoughts on cruising in your beautiful state? Uh, Yeah, in Anchorage here, we don't get so many of the cruise ships, but the impact on our southeast Alaska communities from cruise ships is about $940 a person they bring in. And some of these cruise ships, you know, have, I think, in excess of 2,000 people. So, And I believe Ketchikan can have, like, four ships in there. So four ships, 2,000 people, $940 per person to the state. That's a lot of money, you know. You talk about selling your soul, I think. Um, they get a good price. There's, there's, <laughs> but there's... <laughs> But there's not much else down there. The uh, logging industry has been on the outs for years, and, you know, statewide oil industry is down. So, yeah, you sell your soul, but it's about all you have, you know. Mm -hmm. So I know it's disruptive for the towns down there, like Ketchikan, I guess. You know, it's a small town of 8,200 people. And, you know, certainly if you bring in four ships with 2,000 people, that's just totally overwhelming doubling the population, so I, you can just imagine a, a small town like that just overwhelming them. But I know that one of our southeast communities here a few years ago did try to impose a head tax, and the cruise company said, fine, we'll pull it out. And the impact on the local economy was tremendous, and that lasted about a year, I believe. So, And then they um, invited the cruise ships back, eh? On their, yeah, on their, yeah. On their terms, yeah. Well, Elizabeth, what's your, <laughs> what's your uh, thought on that, Elizabeth? The history of cruises and communities in Alaska is a rich one, and what is significant is when the community works with their local government and the cruise ships to solve problems, not only this question of how much money is made, but also, very importantly, for Southeast Alaska, the environmental impact. And there are several serious problems, lawsuits with cruise ships found dumping in the very fragile southeast oh, yeah, Alaska well, environment. Absolutely. You know, that's a, a major problem when you have 6,000 people on a ship. I've, we've got an email here from Ali in Turku, Finland, and Ali writes, Last year, only 30% of the cruise ships in the Baltic left their sewage in ports, which they can do free of charge. The rest dumped their sewage directly into the Baltic Sea. The World Wildlife Foundation now has ruled that starting in 2019, no new cruise ship may dump their sewage into the Baltic, uh, and for existing ships, they get to uh, wait until 2023 before that prohibition kicks in. But they've got a serious problem with cruise ships dumping their sewage directly into the Baltic. Uh, and, of course, it brings a lot of income to the towns, but it uh, wrecks havoc on the uh, environment. And looking around the world, the state of California, I think, did the best analysis of how much does the money bring? How much does it cost to clean up? Mm -hmm. the water pollution in particular. So the California, a few years ago, took the extreme position, no dumping at, of anything. Hey, Ben, thanks for your call. You betcha. Nice talking to you. Take care. 
This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Elizabeth Becker. Her book is Overbooked. And Elizabeth, when we look at the tourism industry in general, can you give it a, a sense of imbalance? How is it good for an economy and how is it bad for an economy? And overall, is this something that can be smartly uh, managed so that it's a positive? The good side is so wonderful. It's the easiest way to transfer wealth, in a sense, to a developing economy. When you have a beautiful country with visitors coming to see it, it's it's easy. You don't have to build smokestacks, and you have an interaction that is the equivalent of a diplomacy, a soft diplomacy. There are all kinds of benefits, but at the center of that has to be a government that is smart enough about tourism to know the downsides as well as the upsides. Mm -hmm. And in my book, I alternate between a good example and a not-so-good example all the way through to show that at the center of all of this is a smart government that knows that there's economic ups and downs, political ups and downs, and, and cultural ups and downs. I mean, this is your field. What would we be if we didn't understand these wonderful cultures? Mm -hmm. And that's just marvelous, and one doesn't want to in any way inhibit that. At the same time, that needs nurturing. And the thing that, the phrase that I kept using that I learned from the industry is, a place is so beautiful it will be loved to death. Mm. There are several places, I mentioned Venice, and, and you were talking about Florence, where Venice is very much in, in danger of being loved to death, too many tourists and mm. not clever government. Whereas France is a, an example of a country that's very smart about it, understands how to help tourists really love what is French and not generally international, at the same time using tourism to nurture not just the economy, but the culture. And I use the example because we all, when you don't know France, you think a bunch of arrogant French people are going to make fun of your crummy um, accents. Mm -hmm. Well, in fact, people go there and they all fall in love, and mm -hmm. it's, this, it's the size of the state of Missouri but it is the most visited country in the world, and that takes a very smart government to do that. And the French invented the whole um, idea of tourism, mm -hmm, really. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, Club Med was the early thing. The legal obligation for employees to offer people a vacation comes out of mm -hmm. France. Uh, the mm -hmm. whole idea of, of travel for recreation to recharge. What's a concrete way that, that France has managed its tourism? Because in your book you talk about how you know tourism is one economy that really is controlled and shaped by government policies to a huge degree. How do the French mm -hmm. do it? One of the things the French did was they were the first to also have a Ministry of Culture. Mm. And the Ministry of Culture works with the Ministry of Tourism, Transportation, the Ministry of Agriculture. I sat in on some of these meetings, and I was, first of all, overwhelmed by the bureaucracy, but also impressed because they have cultural events around the country, because they want to make sure every province has a way to draw in tourists. We all know Cannes Film Festival. Mm -hmm. Avignon has the photo. Aix-en-Provence has the musical. On and on. They now have more ski tourism than any other country in the world because the government subsidizes a lot of this stuff to say, what can we do to build up this area of France for its own people in such a way to also attract tourists? And they're open about it. They don't think this is in any way exploitative. They think this is a way to be part of the 21st century world. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking with Elizabeth Becker. Her book is Overbooked, and it's talking about the exploding business of travel and tourism, the good and the bad of the biggest employer on this planet. Elizabeth, it's, it's been so fun talking with you about this amazing industry. I want to just finish off revisiting this whole idea of the 
potential beauty of travel because there's a downside. When we travel, we contribute to climate change. It's hard to get around that. By the way, have you thought of a way that we can travel uh, mindful of our carbon footprint and do it in a way that makes us carbon neutral? The easiest to do is to make your trips much longer and fewer. Because the, the flight is really the, 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 the major contributor. Yeah. And when you travel, try to use trains. Mm, instead of flying. And for me, I want to deal with this in an honest way because I, I want to be carbon neutral and I know I'm causing a lot of people to fly because all I do is talk about how great it is to go over there. <laughs> but I really think there's some intangible value of, of getting out beyond our country and gaining an empathy for the other 96% of humanity and this people-to-people value of travel. If I can bring that home, I really believe that contributes to just a world that can live more together and with more respect for diversity and tolerance and and sustainability. And when we travel thoughtfully, we can consume in a way that you mentioned transfers money, not just to rich country corporations within a developing country, but actually money that stays in that country. And we travel in a way where we open up and we, we become a global citizen. Can you just wrap it up with a couple of thoughts on how we can consume in a way where our money stays there and helps people and how we can come home as a better citizen of this planet? The thing that most impressed me were the travelers who did a little bit of homework, the ones who studied so that they had a sense of where they were going before they took their trip, the ones who tried to learn some of the language. And then once when they got there, they had a roadmap where they would meet the people, go to those back alleys, and not just tick off the monument and the monument. But it's also having an open mind, as you said. And there is something to this notion of soft diplomacy, that when you go to a country and you see that, in fact, in India, there are many more races and religions and languages than there are in all of Europe, you say, my gosh, this is a universe of itself. And then you go to Africa, and you're finally in one of those parks where there are more animals than people, and you say, Mm. this is almost biblical. (laughs) And those are the moments that people will never forget, and those are the moments that we should steer towards ourselves. It means that we do more of our homework, and I'll be the first to raise my hand to say that I was lazy until I did all this work. And we make the effort, because we're not just flying and flopping, as I said before. We are active citizens, we're actively meeting other people, and when we do that, and also when we respect where we're going, respect them by treating them as well as we would treat anybody in our own home, and also not worry about ourselves, get lost. If we can get lost in another culture, that is great. Very nice. Elizabeth Becker, thank you so much, and happy travels with your uh, your uh, work and your writing, and thanks for writing Overbooked. Thank you. Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington. I'm your producer, Tim Tatton, along with Sarah McCormick and Isaac Kaplan-Wolner. Thanks to Radio Canada in Montreal, KNPR in Las Vegas, and National Public Radio in Washington for studio help this week. Find more in the radio section of ricksteves.com. Rick Steves has spent a third of his adult life in Europe researching and writing guidebooks. Europe Through the Back Door teaches the skills of smart travel. Travel as a political act adds meaning to the journey. And Rick Steves' best-selling country, city, and pocket guidebooks cover every corner of Europe. To learn more, visit the Travel Store at ricksteves.com.